This is The Guardian. You're about to hear evidence as set in court during the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial, read by voice actors. The evidence has been edited in some respects for time and ease of listening, but remains an accurate representation of those sections of the trial. And this episode contains descriptions of conflict and strong language that some listeners may find distressing. Please listen with care. It's late afternoon at patrol base Wahab, and it's still oppressively hot. The cooling breeze is yet to roll up the Baluchi Valley of southern Afghanistan, and the dozen Australian soldiers posted to the base are stripped to their civvies. They're in shorts and singlets, playing board games and cards. Patrol base Wahab is about 20 kilometres north of Tarankout in Afghanistan's Uruzgan province. Running along a sandy ridgeline, the base is a motley collection of old prefab huts and lookout posts, hunkered down behind sandbag blast walls. It's not much to look at. The Australians are posted here alongside members of the Afghan National Army, the ANA. Mentors to the ANA troops, the Australians are training them and taking them on what are known as partnered patrols. But not today. On the afternoon of August 29, 2012, it's quiet. Then, just on dusk and without any warning, an Afghan soldier draws his weapon and begins firing at the seated Australians from close range. Two Australians die instantly. A third will perish before medical treatment can arrive. In the panic that follows, the rogue Afghan soldier, a man named Hekmatullah, escapes from his hiding place and jumps the fence, fleeing the base into the valley. He vanishes into the fading light. Ben Robert Smith arrives at patrol base Wahab shortly after the attack. He finds a scene of chaos and confusion. So the Australians didn't know what what was going on and I don't think they knew how to deal with it. This is the evidence he gave in his defamation trial in the federal court. That's, well, that's the sense we got when we got there. It was a schmozzle. As an SAS patrol commander, Corporal Ben Robert Smith takes charge. Robert Smith says he assists with de-escalating the situation, making sure everything is secure and that everybody is safe. Then Robert Smith says he and the other soldiers collect as much information as they can about the attack and about Hekmatullah. His background, his family, who his friends were, the villages he might seek to run to, possible links to terror cells, anything at all they can find out about this man. 24 hours later, Hekmatullah is designated as a high-value target. Finding this man to capture or to kill him becomes the overriding priority for the Australians. We had been barred from conducting any other missions. We could only target Hekmatullah. This is a manhunt to bring justice for the three soldiers who've been killed. I'm Ben Doherty. And from Guardian Australia, this is Ben Robert Smith versus the media. Ben Robert Smith, the most 
decorated living Australian soldier is suing three newspapers in the federal court over a series of articles he claims falsely portray him as a war criminal, committing murder in Afghanistan. The newspapers defend their reporting as true. Robert Smith denies all wrongdoing. During an SAS mission on the 11th of September 2012, Ben Robert Smith says he and another soldier shot and killed a member of the Taliban they found hiding in a cornfield. But other people there say that never happened. They say the man was a handcuffed prisoner whom Ben Robert Smith kicked off a cliff and then ordered shot dead. This allegation is a centrepiece to Robert Smith's complex and sprawling defamation case. For the newspapers, proving what they allege happened that day will be critical to their defence. If Robert Smith's version is accepted by the court, it will go a long way to vindicating his argument that the allegations made against him are nothing but malicious lies concocted by a group of jealous soldiers. The court has yet to deliver its judgment. On September 11, 2012, the Australian SAS arrive in a village called Dawan, flying in by helicopter at dawn. Dawan is in an area controlled by the Taliban, and the Australian forces have intelligence that Hekmatullah is hiding in the village. About 30 Australians are about to commence a raid on Dawan. They're divided into patrols of about five soldiers each, and each patrol is led by a patrol commander. Ben Robert Smith is one of these patrol commanders, and he's also recently been installed as a recipient of the Victoria Cross. Robert Smith is in charge of four men during this raid. You'll hear from some of them later. He says his patrol lands near the Helmand River, which runs close by to the village. Our task that day was to conduct a blocking force to the north of the assault force. Almost immediately, one of Robert Smith's patrol members spots someone he thinks might be an insurgent on the far side of the river. He gives Robert Smith a thumbs down signal. That signal in military hand language simply means enemy. When he did that, I looked past him, saw the individual he was talking about, and could actually see a weapon slung on the individual's back. I engaged with a few rounds. Engagement, that's military argo for a fight, to be in conflict with the enemy. Two or three rounds. The man believed to be an insurgent manages to find some cover in what Robert Smith describes as a rocky outcrop, a few large boulders. He tells his team to fire a couple of rounds either side of the rocky outcrop. So the man is pinned there. He can't move. He can't get out. Robert Smith makes the decision to cross the Helmand River. He takes off his body armour and he takes off his helmet and he leaves those behind. The river is fast flowing, perhaps 20 metres wide at this point and I tried to keep my rifle out of the water as best as I could, and in the centre of the river, I couldn't touch the bottom. So clearly, it was deeper than two metres. The reason that I chose to swim across the river was because we had identified someone who was obviously an insurgent, had a weapon, and my view was it could be Hekmatullah, and he is our priority target for Australia right now. He is worth the risk to go after him. He makes it across the river, and then he clambers towards the rocky outcrop and discovers he can walk between these massive boulders like hallways. He's searching for this man, but it's not until he climbs on top of the boulders that he spots him. 
and I saw him squatting there. He hadn't seen me. He was holding his rifle, and I just engaged him at that point. From probably two metres away, something like that. Killed him instantly. Robert Smith pulls the insurgent's body out of the boulders and sees the man has a rifle and some detonators. And the detonators themselves were very high-end detonators for what we typically see in Afghanistan. They weren't homemade. And that was why it stuck out to me. I had never seen an insurgent with detonators on them before. So I thought this guy might be someone significant. Robert Smith doesn't know who this man is. This could be Hekmatullah, the man they're all looking for. So he knows they're going to have to identify him somehow. The reason I couldn't tell, even though we had a photo, is because I had engaged the individual from the top of his head. So just to put it bluntly, he didn't have a face. I couldn't identify him physically. Well, he didn't have the top of his head, so I couldn't do it. Basically, half his face was showing. From the other side of the river, the second in command of Robert Smith's patrol, a man known as Person 4, takes a photo of the insurgent. Now, I'll pause here to point out that in the newspaper's original defence statement, the newspapers alleged this man was unarmed and that Ben Robert Smith had executed him. However, before the trial started, this allegation was dropped. His lawyer asks Robert Smith how this additional accusation made him feel. Well, noting that I believed it was my duty to accept the risk because it was Heckman Tula and he just killed Australian soldiers, and I effectively put myself at risk to swim across the river just to get there, I find this one particularly disgusting because, if anything, you would think that people would be, would be proud of someone who's prepared to do that in the sense that you risk your own life to try and catch somebody who had just killed three of our people. So it's now accepted by the newspapers that this killing was lawful, that this man was an insurgent. The court hears that the photo taken of the insurgent is of no use. It's taken from too far away. It's too grainy to identify anyone. But they know that it's not Hekmatullah. So the search continues. Robert Smith tells the court, after the engagement, he gathers up the equipment from the insurgent wraps it in a dark-coloured shawl and swims back across the river where he joins the rest of his patrol. He hands in the equipment to another soldier on the ground, but he's never actually asked in court about what exactly it is he hands over. The second-in-command soldier, Person 4, tells the court that the equipment brought back across the river by Robert Smith consisted of a detonator cord, a rifle and an ICOM radio. Another soldier in the patrol tells the court he can only remember seeing the rifle. The ICOM radio is essentially a walkie-talkie of the type that's used by the Taliban. And where this particular radio may have ended up is a key part of evidence in the newspaper's defence, alleging that Ben Robert Smith was later complicit in the killing of an unarmed man. All right. Mohammed Hanifa, can you please tell me your full name? My name is Mohammed Hanifa Fortea. Mohammed Hanifa is one of three Afghan witnesses called to testify in this defamation case. He was living in Darwan in 2012. He's beamed into the Australian courtroom on a video link from the Afghan capital Kabul. He's dressed in traditional Afghan clothing, an olive green Parahan Tunban and a black vest. The court heard evidence through one translator 
But to make it clear who's giving evidence, we've chosen three different voice actors to portray the Afghan witnesses. Mohammed Hanifa has been questioned here by the lawyer for the newspapers, Nicholas Owens. Okay. What work did you do in Darwan? In Darwan, I was working in the land. We were cultivating wheat, corn, kidney beans, tomatoes. On the morning of the raid, Hanifa says he's praying. During my prayer, I heard the noise of vehicles. I saw two helicopters. And then there were four others following those two helicopters. And they were coming. Then Hanifa says he sees his neighbour, Mangul. I told him, there is a raid. Where are you going? Mangul is the second Afghan witness to take the stand for the newspapers. So I told him, OK, if it's a raid, just go home. Mangul says he walks towards his house. I had heard on the radios that when there is a raid and, fo- and the foreigners, do not leave your house. Mangul and Hanifa don't actually get back to their homes. They end up together, sitting at their shared guest house. And it's there they see a man they both know in the distance, a man called Ali Jan. They say Ali Jan is walking with his donkeys. Hanifa leaves Mangul and catches up with Ali Jan. I went towards Ali Jan. I took one of the donkeys from him, thinking that we will look like nomads. And then the foreign soldiers will think that we are nomads. Did he say anything to Ali Jan or did Ali Jan say anything to him? I must have had a conversation with him, but I took one of the donkey and he was taking the other donkey. Hanifa says the soldiers fire two shots at them, so he and Ali Jan take the donkeys and return to the guest house. The men drink tea and they wait. After, after the tea, we ate melon. We're sitting there for much time, a lot of time. Ali Jan is not from Darwan. According to Hanifa, He's visiting the village on the day of the raid. Ali Jan lived three hours walk away in a village called Barg, but he would come to Darwan to sell wood or to mill wheat. And work. What work did Ali Jan do? There was a water spring. They were using that water spring for irrigation purposes, for irrigating their fields. He also had some animals, cattle, and he would also bring wood, and then they would sell that. Hanifa tells the court Ali Jan is the brother of his stepmother. Ali Jan is his uncle. Yes, I grew up as a child with him. They used to come to our house. We used to go to their house. This is the evidence the newspapers lay out to the court about Ali Jan. Because Ali Jan is the man the newspapers allege Ben Robert Smith kicked off a cliff. Is Ali Jan still alive? No. After killing the insurgent on the far side of the river, Robert Smith swims back to his patrol. He puts his armour back on over his wet uniform and joins the other patrols working their way through Darwan village. Our teams was effectively all combined, just rolling through those initial compounds down closest to the river, and we started to work our way up. The soldiers begin clearing the compounds that make up Darwan village. These are flat-topped, mud-walled structures and they're looking for their target, Hekmatullah, or anyone who might be an insurgent, who might be a threat. In these rural villages, it's very hard to know who is an insurgent and who's not. The Taliban don't wear uniforms. They don't have formal barracks or command structures. So for the Australians, anyone judged to be a fighting-age male 
is treated with suspicion and taken into custody. The soldiers call these men pucks, a person under control. The laws of war state they cannot be harmed, they cannot be killed. In his evidence, Robert Smith says he doesn't have any independent memory of dealing with any pucks at Darwan this day. He says he knows now his team dealt with pucks because of subsequent documents and pictures he's been shown. But sitting in court, he says he can't remember any of that. He's asked about it by his barrister, Bruce McClintock, SC. Were you aware of where the Puck holding area was at Darwan, Mr Robert Smith? I don't have a recollection of it. I'm aware now because of the reporting that we've been given, but at the time, no, I don't. I didn't ever see it, and I never went there. What Robert Smith does remember is that he had an interpreter with his team for part of the raid on Darwan. This isn't uncommon. The soldiers don't speak the language, Pashto. They need someone to translate. But then Robert Smith says he got a call asking for the interpreter to be taken to the Puck holding area in another part of Darwan village. He says he told one of his team members to escort the interpreter there. And I distinctly remember that because I was slightly irritated because I only had a four-man team at that point. Robert Smith says his shrunken patrol moves through the village until they reach the last set of compounds and they begin to clear those. Robert Smith tells the court, it takes some manoeuvring. So my patrol and other members that I don't recall move from that compound that you've just indicated towards the last compound set along a footpad because the terrain in between, there's some very steep ground right in the centre. So you have to go down effectively to the river, along the river and then back to the compounds themselves. Robert Smith is asked what happened when he got to the last compound. So we began to clear those compounds. There was nothing significant in those. What happened at this last set of compounds is a key tension in this case. You're going to hear the newspaper's version of events, evidence led by their lawyer, Nicholas Owens. Along with Hanifa and Mangul, the newspaper's other primary witness is another soldier in Robert Smith's patrol. He's the second in command of this patrol, and he's known before the court as Person 4. Almost every soldier who gives evidence in this trial is anonymised before the court protect their identity. Person 4 is in the last set of compounds with his patrol commander, Ben Robert Smith, and with another member of his patrol, known as Person 11. And Person 4 remembers this last set of compounds very differently. Ben Robert Smith, uh, Person 11, got to the compound wall or the entrance first. And as we went through and cleared it, there was the timeline's a bit rough, but potentially there was an individual at that point located. He recalls they did find something significant, or rather someone. That individual had an animal with him, like a, a donkey. The donkey itself had a distinct Afghani rug on it, a red design rug, and there was baskets on that donkey that were full of wood for them to use for cooking. Person 4 says this person was pucked, placed under the control of the Australian soldiers. That individual is restrained, searched bodily for items that could prove dangerous. Also, you know, intelligence, there may have been some form of intelligence on him. Historically, there's been movement of high explosive weapon systems on, on donkeys, so that was a prime 
prime focus of the clearance as well. Next, Person 4 says Robert Smith directs one of his team members to find the interpreter. This is in contradiction to Robert Smith's evidence. He tells the court there was nothing significant in the final compound and that the interpreter wasn't present. Person 4 tells Nicholas Owens that the team member returns to the compound with the interpreter. Can you tell His Honour what you remember happening from that point? Your Honour, tactical, tactical questioning was conducted. Who? Who did that? How was that undertaken to your recollection? Ben Robert Smith was our primary tactical questioner. He had attended a course and he had the qualification. Um, and so he was basically questioning and the interpreter was a word machine, basically. Just verbatim asked the individual what RS was saying. RS, Robert Smith's nickname in the regiment. An inconsistency to point out. Person 4 only remembers two people pucked and interrogated at this final compound. The Afghan men say there were three of them, Ali Jan, Mangul and Hanifa. The Afghan men tell the court that after their hands have been tied behind their backs, the Australian soldiers begin questioning them, using the interpreter. Then he told me, are you a Talib? I said, no. And then he told me, show me Hikmatullah. Hanifa remembers two soldiers with the interpreter, and he recalls the interpreter becoming forceful in his questioning. Then he pointed the pistol to my, to my head, and he hit me with the pistol, and he said, show me Hikmatullah, otherwise I will shoot you in your head. Mangul, who is also being questioned, talks about a big soldier being present alongside the interpreter. What is Hikmatullah? Don't you know Hikmatullah? I said, no, I don't know Hikmatullah. I don't know anybody here named Hikmatullah. There was a big soldier sitting beside me. I look at him. He hit me. And then I look at him again. He hit me. And then the interpreter told me, do not look at him. They don't like people looking at them. The Afghan villagers, of course, don't know the soldiers' names. These foreign men in body armour and dark glasses helmets and face paint. The newspapers argue that Ben Robert Smith's size, he's nearly two metres tall, is crucial for identification. Hanifa tells Nicholas Owens he also sees the big soldier around this time. Can you describe the big soldier as best you can? The big soldier, he had blue eyes, like kind of brownish. There's a bit of translation difficulty in the court. Hanifa is pressed about what he means by big soldier. Is he talking about the man's size or whether he's the head or the commanding soldier? It's a question that doesn't get neatly resolved. I don't understand what they mean by meaning the big soldier, how to explain the big soldier, but his uniform was wet until here. At wet until here, Hanifa points to the middle of his chest. The wet until here line is critical because the newspapers allege that's evidence that this big soldier is Ben Robert Smith, who'd swum across the Helmand River twice, chasing the man he believed to be Hekmatullah. After that, this big soldier, his uniform was wet, and even the sand, there was, you know, sand from the river was also on, on his uniform. The interpreter was standing behind me, and the big soldier, he was looking into my eyes. And the interpreter told me that I will be talking to you, but you will be... You must look at the 
to the big soldier into his eyes. Hanifa tells the court that Ali Jan, who had previously been outside of his line of sight, is brought nearer to him by the interpreter. And the, then the interpreter, he brought, the, he brought Ali Jan. And then he said something to him, and Ali Jan smiled. And I told Ali Jan, don't laugh or don't smile, because they do not like when you smile or when you laugh. So could Muhammad Hanifa see Ali Jan with his own eyes? Yes, because there was less than two meters distance between us. I, I could see him. He was near right there. Person four, second in command, says the call to extract comes over the troop radio. The soldiers will be leaving soon. The helicopters are coming. And they have to finish up whatever jobs they're doing. Person four says Robert Smith directs one of his team members to take the interpreter back to headquarters. Then, person four says he moves to a new position. I moved down a rocky slope uh, between some compounds. I got to the corner of a compound. Where he says he sees person 11, the other soldier in Robert Smith's patrol. As I negotiated the corner, I saw person 11 uh, positioned with his back. Uh, it was towards a large drop-off. Um, and he's holding the person under control. Which person under control are you talking about? The individual that had um, arrived with the donkey. Now, can you describe as best as you can recall, which way was the person under control facing? The person under control had his back towards the large slope. At this time, the, the big soldier, he came, he said something to him, and then Alijan smiled. I noticed Ben Robert Smith, he had uh, walked to a position well, maybe three or four metres away. Now, as I was trying to understand like, what was happening, he turned around, walked forward and kicked the individual in the chest. Ali Jans was kicked. The soldier kicked him not with the sole of his feet, rather with the, the toes. Then, at this time, I really got scared. I lowered my head. The newspapers allege that this kick happened at the top of a cliff, and the force of the kick caused Ali Jan to fall back over the cliff and land in the dry creek bed below. The individual was uh, catapulted backwards. He was rolling down, rolling down until he reached the river. The soldier was looking at him. He was standing there and, and looking at him. I saw the individual's face uh, strike a large rock, sustained a serious injury. He knocked out a number of his uh, teeth, including his front teeth. Person 4 sees where Robert Smith and Person 11 go next, and he follows them. He says the pair move along the face of the steep drop-off, and then along a track system that leads down to the creek bed. Had anyone either Mr. Robert Smith, Person 11, or yourself, said anything at this point? I'm unsure. I, I was in some sort of shock at that point. Why are you in shock? Might be an obvious question, but why were you in shock? Because it's, it was something I've never encountered before. When you say you've never seen this before, you're referring to someone being kicked off a cliff? Absolutely. Person 4 says that he... Robert Smith and Person 11 
find the man lying in the dry riverbed. Well, the individual was uh, quite dusty and had sustained a serious facial injury. Were you able to tell if the individual was alive or not? Well, as we were approaching that individual, he did uh, attempted to sit up um, and then he fell back down again. Was he still handcuffed or not? Yes. To the rear? Yes. Person four says Robert Smith orders him and person 11 to drag the man across the creek bed. Where did you drag him to? We dragged him to a large tree. At this point, person four moves off a few metres to try to locate other members of the troop. He says he hears a muffled conversation between Ben Robert Smith and person 11, but he can't make out the words. Person four says he looks around and sees the injured man standing, still in handcuffs. What's the next thing you recall after you turned back to look away from the individual? There was a number of shots um, rang out. How many? Oh, not exactly, but uh, uh, two, maybe three rounds. I looked around and Person 11 was still in a position with his rifle in his shoulder. Owens asks if Person 4 sees the body again after these alleged shots. Person 4 says he does. And did you observe anything about it that struck you? There was an ICOM radio, um, which was positioned next to his body. Um, yeah. Are you aware how that ICOM came to be placed next to his body? Uh, no. And to your knowledge, did that puck have on his body, during the time he's been pucked, kicked off the cliff, dragged across the river, did he have an ICOM on his body, to your knowledge? To my knowledge, no. Did you recognise the ICOM? The ICOM was slightly wet. Its uh, screen had water penetrated in it, so it was fogged up. And did did you have any understanding where that ICOM had come from? Uh, I guess it dawned on me. I, I, I didn't know where, where it had come from. But where did it dawn on you where it had come from? From the individual across the river. The individual across the river. Person 4 is referring here to the insurgent killed by Ben Robert Smith across the other side of the Helmand River at the very start of the raid. The newspapers are alleging that this ICOM radio was placed on the body of the man in an attempt to make it look as though he was a legitimate target lawfully killed. It's what's known as a throwdown. However, Person 4 is interrogated about this during cross-examination by Robert Smith's other barrister, Arthur Moses SC. Hmm. And why did it dawn upon you that this was the same item? Because the LCD screen was fogged up. There was moisture in the keypad. That's what made you think it was the same? That's correct. You're just making this assumption, correct? Sorry, you're just making an assumption, correct? Yes, because that was the only wet item on this individual. That was an assumption you were making, correct? That is correct. The team conduct SSE on the body. That's sensitive site exploitation. It's a process that happens after an insurgent is killed. The soldiers are looking for additional intelligence or information, and they're taking photographs of the body. Person four says he thinks the handcuffs were removed during this SSE process, though he can't recall by whom. After SSE concludes, person four says the patrol moves to their extraction point. Soon after, the helicopters arrive to take the soldiers away. 
Watching this raid from a nearby hut is the third Afghan witness in this trial. His name is Shazada, and he is also a witness for the newspapers, being questioned by Nicholas Owens. Okay. Do you know how, how old he is, Shazada? My age could be 60, 70 years, 70 years. Shazada is the father of Hanifa. Ali Jan is his brother-in-law. And from his vantage point, he says he saw a soldier kick Ali Jan off a cliff. I saw, I saw Ali Jan. Ali Jan's hands were tied up and they made him stand up. Ali Jan was facing the soldier and then the soldier kicked him and he went down. It should be pointed out that in cross-examination, a question was raised about how much Shazada could actually see, given he was about 250 to 300 metres away, and his eyesight, he admits, is not good. After watching the soldiers climb into their aircraft and fly away, he goes looking for Ali Jan. I went towards where the creek is, the river, and I was looking for Ali Jan. Shazada meets up with Mangul and his son Anifa, who are also looking for Ali Jan. So we went towards the buried trees and we found Ali Jan's body in the corner field. He was lying down on his back and a bullet shot at his jaw. There was a bullet on his chest and also there were bullets or shots on his arm and some of the flesh was gone with, with the shots. One other thing, one of his hands was behind his body. Mangul says they clean Ali Jan's body. There was a lot of dirt on his face. We cleaned that and then we buried him under the shade of the berry tree. And then we put a shawl over his body. Ben Robert Smith and his witnesses, under questioning from his lawyers, have the opportunity to present their version of what happened in that last compound in Darwan. You'll recall that Robert Smith says his patrol found nothing of significance in that final compound. Robert Smith says his patrol waits around 10 minutes or so before they get the call to extract. Typically, what will happen is the troop commander provides an extraction window, which means that you have to be ready and at your HLZ. HLZ or HLS. It's the helicopter landing site. By that particular time, because then you will have a period of time before the helicopters actually land. Extraction was a time to be alert. The tactics of the Taliban was that insurgents would hide in cornfields or areas of thick vegetation and try to ambush the soldiers as they were leaving a village. Prior to that, we had been hit at least four or five times as we tried to leave from different operations. Robert Smith and his patrol start carefully moving up an embankment. Shortly after coming out of the dry creek bed, I identified an individual in amongst the corn and the rest of the fields. This is Person 11, another member of Robert Smith's patrol. He's a trooper, a junior member of the patrol, and a witness in this trial for Ben Robert Smith. This individual was moving, my assessment, this person was moving in a very suspicious manner. Under observation, I made the assessment and saw this person carrying a radio, which led me to make the assessment that this was a spotter. Spotter, a forward scout who reports the foreign soldiers' movements back to militants. Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses, asks Person 11 how this individual was carrying the radio. It was in his hand. Are you able to recall which hand now? I cannot now. Are you able to recall what happened next? 
So from there, the individual appeared to be trying to remain concealed, noting that our helicopters were on approach. And I sensed that this person posed a direct threat to our extraction and our friendly forces. And so I engaged. How far away from you was that individual when you engaged? May have been a distance of about 15 metres. Robert Smith says he sees Person 11 begin to engage an individual and he moves up to support. As I got there, he was engaging and I started to engage an individual that had already effectively was either going down or was down. Robert Smith says the man is close. He tells the court, facing him, he was two metres away. And I fired three to five rounds, or in the vicinity of that, I think, from my recollection, into the individual as well and saw dust and strike on the ground around him, suggesting that either my bullets were hitting him or very close to him. Moses asks Person 11, what happens next? After the individual was engaged, Person 11, what did you then do? Once the person was engaged, I then continued to advance towards that area to make an assessment if the threat was dead or not, and if there was any other threat in the area. Did you come across any other threats at that time? No. Person 11 says they conduct a hasty SSE. Hasty because the helicopters are on their way. The body was searched from head to toe, back to front. The body was moved to and positioned so that we could try and search any pockets or areas where they might, any kind of equipment or items that would be of interest or value to the mission. During that search, we did recover the ICOM radio. I can't recall if there was anything else of interest. Person 11 says the ICOM was found on the ground in the vicinity of the body. The soldiers placed the ICOM on the body to take photographs as part of SSE. Photos that were later shown to witnesses in this trial. Robert Smith also remembers finding the ICOM radio on the man's body. Robert Smith radios back to his superiors to say that they've got an EKIA, an enemy killed in action. And I made a radio transmission to Alpha, which is the troop commander, saying that we had one EKIA. We had engaged a spotter in the cornfield. Soon afterwards, helicopters arrive and the Australians leave Darwin. Person four, the second in command of Robert Smith's patrol, who says he witnessed the kick, says that after the raid, they go back to their base. Person four says Robert Smith goes to a debrief with the other patrol commanders. That was the procedure in 2012 after a raid. The patrol commanders talk about what happened and a report is written up. Person four says that after this debrief, Robert Smith joins up with the rest of the patrol. He tells Nicholas Owens what happens next. He came back into our room and said, this is what the story is. And when he said, this is what the story is, what did he say after that? He outlined the story that he had given. Your Honour, it was words to the effect of, the story is that we engaged a spotter uh, whilst moving to our HLS. In cross-examination, Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses, picks up on this so-called direction from Robert Smith. Now, this conversation that you say Mr. Robert Smith had with you, the effect of it was, at, as you understood it, that what occurred at Darwin was to be a secret. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And because if anybody found out about it, then you could all be in trouble, correct? I assume so. So it had to be kept a secret, correct? 
Yes, well, that's what we were led to believe. And so you're being told to tell a false story, correct? We were directed to tell it. Okay. Now what I want... Moses, you seem to forget that he was a VC winner at this time. Yeah. He was running his own narrative. The only person who's running by their own narrative is you, isn't it, Person Four? That's incorrect. You are making up stories, aren't you? Absolutely not. Person Four says that despite being asked to keep this secret, he later hears Robert Smith telling other soldiers, people outside his patrol, that he kicked a man off a cliff. Okay, so VC winner Mr Robert Smith telling a group of individuals about him kicking a man off. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Was that before or after he told you to keep this as a secret? That was after. That was after. So after telling you to keep this as a secret, you then heard him telling people. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. So just tell us what it is you can recall he said in the conversation. Words to the effect of and kicked him off, and kicked him off the cliff. And I kicked who was? Is that what he said? I kicked the individual off the cliff. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? I kicked the cunt off the cliff. I kicked the cunt off the cliff? Yeah. Is that what he said? Yes. See this, I'm going to put it to you, what you've just told the court is, is a fantasy by you, isn't it? That is not correct. In the days following the Darwin mission, Person 4 says he recalls a drawing on a whiteboard in the soldiers' lines, that is, their barracks, that give a bizarre representation of the incident that has allegedly occurred in Darwan and suggests it was no longer a secret. It was a drawing of my best recollection. It was a winged penis kicking an individual off a cliff. A winged penis, a crude homage to the SAS symbol of a winged dagger. Person 4 is the only witness who claims to have seen this drawing. The SAS mission was a failure. They did not find Hekmatullah in Darwan. It would take another year before he would be found, captured, charged and convicted for killing the Australian soldiers. But following the fall of Kabul in 2021, Hekmatullah is a free man once more. He lives in the Afghan capital under the aegis of the reascendant Taliban. The cross-examination of witnesses often takes longer than their evidence-in-chief, as the lawyers turn their attention to the precise detail of each witness's testimony. They're seeking here to undermine and unpick their evidence, to find fault, to find inconsistency. Ben Robert Smith stays calm and stays resolute under the pressure of cross-examination. SAS soldiers are trained to withstand interrogation. And as the first witness in this trial, he only responds to the general allegations put to him by the newspapers. What emerges later from other witnesses is not specifically addressed at this time. Nicholas Owens asks Robert Smith about the man the newspapers call Ali Jan. He wants to know if Ali Jan was pucked. Was he a person under control? Under the laws of war, if he's been pucked, he cannot be harmed, he cannot be killed. Robert Smith says he doesn't recall seeing any pucks, that he didn't puck anybody in the last compound. 
Owens sets out to prove that Ali Jan was parked and that he was in handcuffs. He shows Robert Smith photographs of the dead man. Now, you would agree that the portion of the man's sleeve down towards the cuff is completely soaked in blood. It appears that way, yes. The newspapers say that there is a thin stripe of clean skin around Ali Jan's wrist where there is no blood. Do you agree that that straight line is consistent with this man having been wearing flexi-cuffs around his wrist at the time when he was bleeding? No. Flexi-cuffs, they're plastic handcuffs. All the soldiers carry them. They're cable ties, basically. Do you agree that something straight was wrapped around this man's wrist and prevented blood from staining his skin at that point? Not at all. This man was wearing flexi-cuffs when he was shot, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. And when that flexi-cuff was removed from his wrist, it left that stripe free from blood around his wrist, correct? No, but if that's the case, there would be blood. Wouldn't be blood in the whole area, so I I don't really understand your point. I'm sorry, Mr Owens. Looks a very small section to me. Owens moves to another photograph. This photograph shows Ali Jan's left arm next to his body with a very large, ragged, open wound. Owens argues this is an exit wound and that an injury of this type is consistent with Ali Jan being shot in the chest while handcuffed, his hands behind his back. Robert Smith disagrees. Can you think of any other explanation for that level of trauma in that location on his arm? It completely depends on where his arms were when we were firing the bullets at him. And the amount of bullets that we had fired mean that that wound is totally possible. What would cause that wound? A bullet hitting it and ripping it open. doesn't have to go through his arm. It can simply go across the top. It would rip my suit open if I had a round fired across the top of my arm. When this man was shot, his arms were handcuffed behind his back weren't they? No, they weren't. Robert Smith argues that this damage could have happened when the insurgent was shot at by him and by Person 11, and that there's nothing out of the ordinary about his injuries. This is contentious evidence in court. No forensic experts were called to interpret the photographs. In Robert Smith's evidence in chief, his barrister, Bruce McClintock, asks Robert Smith about the allegation He kicked a man off a cliff. Did you take a number of steps back and then move forward, kicking this person hard in the midriff or abdomen? No, I didn't. Did that kick cause him to fall over the cliff and land in the dry creek bed below? There was no kick. Okay. Was there a cliff? No, I don't remember seeing a cliff either. I don't remember seeing a cliff. This line from Robert Smith is raked over in cross-examination by the newspapers. We hear hours of evidence about the topography of Darwan. In one exchange, Nicholas Owens takes Robert Smith to photographs that show the geography of the village. Do you see the landfalls very... Steep, yes. Steeply away. Now, are you saying that you wouldn't call that a cliff? Yes, I, I would say I wouldn't call that a cliff. All right. What would you call it? I would say it was a very steep terrain. I mean, if it was a cliff, you wouldn't be able to walk down it. Right. Well, you couldn't walk straight down it or straight up it, could you? I mean, you can't walk sideways across a cliff either. You would have to physically climb it. Right. So for you, a cliff is something that you could only abseil up or down? That's, that would be a cliff, yes. All right. But you will agree with me then that even if you wouldn't call it a cliff, this is a very, very steep incline up which one could not walk. 
I would say it's a steep incline. You could you could walk down that. It would just be difficult. It feels like a semantic dispute, but it's a critical one to the newspaper's case. And Robert Smith is beginning to lose his calm demeanour. All right. So why did you say there wasn't a cliff? Why didn't you say, well, I wouldn't call it a cliff, but I accept there was a very, very steep incline? Because you just said to me, is that an incline? And I tried to explain to you what I, when you say cliff to me, what I associate a cliff to be. Because we were walking all over those areas and in Afghanistan, things are steep everywhere. So it's, I mean, a cliff's a cliff. And that, not a cliff to me. All right. Well, that's the piece of terrain off which you kicked a puck, isn't it? No, it's not. Day after long day, the cross-examination of Ben Robert Smith continues. And then Owens directly lays out the newspaper's version of events. You then walked down to the bottom of the cliff with Person 11, correct? No. And you and Person 11 dragged him across the creek bed to the other side of the river into a cornfield, correct? No. And either you or Person 11 shot him? That is completely false. And he was still handcuffed at this point, wasn't he? No. And then Person 4 joined you, correct? No. And at that point, the man's handcuffs were removed? No. An icon placed on his body? No. And you, Person 4 and Person 11 all discussed how to cover up the killing? Correct. That's false. And you told Person 4 and Person 11 that you would all say that you had encountered a spotter in the cornfield? Correct. No. And that's what you've said ever since, isn't it? No, we explained the engagement exactly how it happened. We'll be back after this. Nicholas Owens is studious and unfailingly polite in court. And these are characteristics that remain consistent whenever he's cross-examining a witness. But there's a steel to his questioning. This path, this lacerating path that often only becomes apparent after 10 or 15 seemingly benign inquiries. Owens turns his attention to person 11, the patrol member who says he engaged the spotter in the cornfield. And how high was the vegetation, do you recall? Um, not specifically. Do your best to remember. High enough. These fields are typically head high, not more. Your best recollection is the crops in this field were about head high. There are a number of different crops that vary in height. Some could be five feet, some could be seven feet. Person 11 tells the court that when he starts firing at this man, he's about 15 metres away. Now, you'll remember in his evidence, Robert Smith has told the court the man was much closer. He said the man was two metres away. But Owens is focused here on Person 11's testimony. Person 11's evidence is he sees the insurgent about 15 metres away through thick vegetation that's between five and seven feet high, around head height. Could you see the insurgent above the crop? I don't recall that I could see above. How is it that you could have seen an insurgent through 15 metres of thickly planted crops that were five to seven feet tall? Because I could. No, you couldn't, could you? That's not true. Because there was no one there, was there? And that's not true, Mr Owens. Person 11 is also asked, how is it he is able to spot an ICOM radio in this man's hand 
amongst that vegetation. Now, you say that you have a clear recollection of him holding the radio in his hand. He did. Where was his hand? By which I mean, by his side? I don't recall it being up to his head from memory around his mid-area. And you say you could see that clearly, notwithstanding 15 metres of thickly vegetated crops. That's what I observed. The crop obstructive view at all? It was clear enough for me. It was not a completely clear line of vision, but it was clear enough for me to make out what I saw. The allegations are put to Person 11 about what the newspapers say happened on that day. You and Mr Robert Smith have concocted a false story to say that there was a spotter in the cornfield to cover up the fact that Mr Robert Smith kicked a puck off a cliff and that you shot him in that field. Correct? That's not correct. After his 2012 rotation in Afghanistan, after Darwan, Person 11 returns to Australia and he gets married. Was Person 4 the best man at your wedding? He was. Person 4 is the soldier who was second in command of Robert Smith's patrol in Darwan and who was given evidence contradicting almost all of the testimony from Robert Smith and from Person 11. When did you get married? 2015. Person 11 tells the court during his evidence in chief that it wasn't until three years later in 2018 that he finds out the best man at his wedding, Person 4, has accused him of unlawfully killing someone at Darwan. Did Person 4 ever speak to you between 2012 and your wedding about any allegations that a person had been unlawfully killed during the 2012 Darwan mission? No, he did not. Has Person 4 ever said to you that you unlawfully killed a person at Darwin? Most certainly not. Is person four a friend of yours? I'd say not anymore. In cross-examination, Owens puts to person 11 that he's upset with person four because he's gone against the story told about Darwin by Robert Smith and person 11. You are particularly angry, are you not, with person four? Mr Owens, I'm not angry with him. I, to be honest, I pity him. I feel for him. He was a great friend, a great man, and I know that he struggles, and I understand his struggles, and I really feel for him. I do. And the reason you are upset with Person 4 is because you thought, because of the closeness of your relationship with him, you could trust him to stay quiet about what happened at Darwin, correct? Mr Owens, I certainly believe that I could trust him for many, many years. But that trust did not extend to keeping things quiet. My level of trust was not that he would not say anything. My level of trust that he had my back on missions when it was just the two of us, isolated from many friendly call signs, working independently, getting through a lot of tough times. That's the level of trust I had in him. This is not about trusting that he would not say anything because those are not the case. Robert Smith's lawyers argue this evidence from Person 11 calls into question the credibility of Person 4. Why wait so long to accuse someone of murder? Arthur Moses takes this point up with Person 4 in cross-examination. You were his best man. Absolutely. And he's upset with you, is that right? I guess so. Yeah. Do you know that he's upset with you because he feels that you have, in effect, accused him of being a murderer? I'd suggest so. According to Robert Smith's lawyers, there are other reasons not to trust Person 4. He's been deeply affected by his time in the army, 
the judge places a suppression order on reportage of the former soldier's health conditions. Moses asks person four about the medication he's taking, or in this particular example, the medication he stopped taking. And why did you stop taking it? Because it wasn't, it was having an effect, a detrimental effect on my everyday life. What was that effect? It was clouding. I had no energy. When you say clouding, what do you mean by clouding? Well, it had me in a fog all day. Difficult to concentrate? Yes, absolutely. Difficult recalling things? Potentially. Memory loss? Yeah, I think the minutiae of things was fading away. Um, you know, small detail, large detail, definitely not. This is a line that Person 4 keeps coming back to over and over again. He says, I may have forgotten the minor details, but I remember the major elements and I remember them clearly. Robert Smith's lawyers also argue that Person 4 can't be trusted, that he's one of the jealous soldiers and that he's making up malicious lies about Robert Smith. And they argue Person 4 might actually have good reason to be jealous of Robert Smith. Person 4 and Robert Smith fought together at Tizak in 2010. This is this legendary battle in the SAS's history, a 13-hour firefight overwhelmingly outnumbered against the Taliban and the famous victory you heard about in episode one. And shortly after Tizak, Ben Robert Smith is awarded the Victoria Cross, the Australian military's highest honour. It makes him instantly a household name. Person 4, meanwhile, waits two years to be recognised for his actions, side by side, shoulder to shoulder with Robert Smith at Tizak. And when he is, it's with a lesser medal, and no one knows his name. Arthur Moses, Robert Smith's barrister, asks Person 4. Do you think it's something that has caused you to deeply resent Mr Robert Smith? I loved him as a brother. You said you loved him as a brother? Absolutely. There's no resentment there. But now you hate him, don't you? Of course I don't hate him. And it's the case, isn't it, that you're jealous of him? Believe me, I'm not jealous of him, Okay. Well, Mr Robert Smith received the VC. You didn't, correct? That's correct. He was somebody who was recognised as Father of the Year. Correct. Somebody who was Chair of the Australia Day Council. Yep. Somebody who dignitaries wanted to meet. Yep. And you wanted to have the life that Mr Robert Smith had, correct? No. I don't need any of that. You wanted to be, of course. I'm not saying unjustly, just saying you wanted to be recognised for your acts on that day. Absolutely. Because my children were alive. They were teenagers and they'd seen, you know, friends, families lose their parents, their father. They knew how dangerous it was. It's recognition for them, not for me. Lawyers for Robert Smith say that person four is an unreliable witness. But the newspapers pose the question, how is it that the evidence of three Afghan villagers who don't speak or read or write English and who give evidence from the other side of the world largely corresponds with the evidence of person four? The evidence of the soldiers is remarkable. It's a rare glimpse into the graphic reality of Australia's war in Afghanistan and the tangled, fractious relationships and egos that make up the secretive SAS. Hearing from the Afghan witnesses was also extraordinary for the very reason that 
we're lucky to have heard from them at all. Their evidence was brought forward in this trial and was only just able to be heard in the narrow window of time between the announcement by US President Joe Biden that American forces were finally withdrawing from Afghanistan and the country falling back into the repressive hands of the Taliban. These three Pashtun men waited in safe houses in Kabul for months before having their days in court, determined to give evidence that their relative and friend, Ali Jan, had been killed by Australian forces. Now, Mangul, do you recognise who is the man in that photograph? This is Ali Jan. During their evidence in chief, Nicholas Owen shows the three men photographs to identify Ali Jan. There is one photograph in particular that all three have a strong reaction to. This is also Ali Jan. Yes, okay. Look, look, this wireless device and the white back, they were not there. Only there were clothes, his clothes on his body. They were not there. This evidence supports the newspaper's argument that the ICOM radio, the wireless device photographed on the body of Ali Jan, was placed there after he was killed. Okay. Did you see Ali Jan that day carrying a radio like that? No, no. He doesn't even know how to operate, how to work out a watch. How about a wireless device? Even I don't know how to operate a wireless device. This is Ali Jan. This picture is of Ali Jan. They have put a wireless device on his chest. The wireless device was not there. For a third time from Hanifa, the court hears a denial that Ali Jan had an ICOM radio. By God, by God, he had nothing with him. By God, they have put the equipment with him. I haven't seen nothing with him. He was busy with his own work. I haven't seen nothing with him, nothing. The three Afghan witnesses are cross-examined by Ben Robert Smith's lawyer, Bruce McClintock. He's full-throated in his defence of his client and forceful in his cross-examination. And the man you saw in the cornfield was not Ali Jan, was it? It was Ali Jan. I knew Ali Jan. One of McClintock's main objectives in this cross-examination is to cast doubt over the man Mangul calls Ali Jan because his argument is that Ali Jan didn't exist, that the man who died that day was not Ali Jan. You did not see any dirt on the face of the corpse you saw in the cornfield, did you? I saw it. Why not? I saw it. One of the things you hear a lot in cross-examination is barristers asking whether the witness in front of them is telling the truth or whether they're lying. Now, barristers have to do this in cross-examination if they want to later submit to the judge that the witness hasn't been truthful. Essentially, it's a rule about fairness. You made that up, didn't you? No. I'm not someone making up from myself. Shazada is asked something similar. And your account of what happened on that day is a complete fabrication, isn't it? No, I have not made it up. Another focus of McClintock's cross-examination is the identity and presence of the big, wet soldier. The court has heard that Robert Smith swam across the Helmand River before clearing the final compound, where the three men were allegedly found. The newspapers say that Hanifa's testimony about the big soldier wet up to here is evidence Hanifa saw Ben Robert Smith. Muhammad Hanifa, the evidence you've given about seeing the big soldier wet, 
is completely untrue, isn't it? Whether you call it a lie, that is up to you. But I have seen this person with my own eyes. It's also a lie to say that his there was sand on his uniform. Sand. Sand. Sand from the river. If you call it a lie, that's up to you. Sand from the river. Now, has someone suggested to you that you should say that, that the big soldier was wet in your evidence? No. I'm the one who is saying that because I saw him with my own eyes. Similar questions are asked of the other two Afghan witnesses about whether they fabricated evidence of a big soldier. Both Mangul and Shahzada affirm. They say they saw the big soldier. They say they didn't make it up. McClintock asks Hanifa whether he made up seeing an interpreter that day too. Hanifa brushes off the question. No, that's not correct. I have seen him, he tells the court. Robert Smith's lawyers also raise a question about the motivations of the three Afghan witnesses to give their evidence. These men have spent a year in a safe house in Kabul with the newspapers paying for rent and for food. Robert Smith's lawyers argue this means their evidence can't be said to be pristine or clear of any suggestibility. The other motivation that's put is that the men have agreed to give evidence because they hate the foreign soldiers. McClintock asks Mohammed Hanifa. You hate the soldiers, don't you? Because they're infidels. If they're coming to our houses, go inside to our women, of course, that's what we call them, infidels. You hate them, don't you? That's, no, I don't like them. Darwan had been hit by the Australian troops at least three times in the years preceding. They come back time and time again, seeking insurgent targets and trying to drive out the Taliban. Mangul is asked similar questions. You certainly believe that the foreign soldiers were cruel to you, don't you? Yes, it is like that. And that they have been cruel to you repeatedly in the course of raids on your village. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, yes, they kill innocent people. They murder them or beat them. Yes, and you hate them, don't you, the foreign soldiers? Yes, it is like that. There's a simmering resentment at the seemingly endless conflict and the violence that washes back and forth across these villages. And, in fact, you agree with the aims of the Taliban to rid Afghanistan of the infidel, don't you? I do not agree with the Taliban. The Taliban have done injustice to us, and the foreigners have also done injustice to us. There are questions about whether Ali Jan was part of the Taliban, which Hanifa denies. If Ali Jan was part of the Taliban, it means his family cannot get compensation for events that happened during the war. The reason why you've said that Ali Jan, or the man you call Ali Jan, was not a Talib was that you know that you won't get compensation if he was a Talib. That's correct, isn't it? He is not a Talib. He is not a Talib. He is a labourer. He is a labourer. That's my cross-examination, Your Honour. All right, thank you. Could you explain to Mr. Hanifa that that completes his evidence and that he is released and free to go about his normal business? Hanifa is excused. His time in the witness box is over and he is thanked by the court for his time and for his evidence. But Hanifa is not finished yet. Look, brother. Look, brother. I am a witness. I am not afraid of anybody. Hanifa is standing now. He's looking directly down the camera, almost shouting... Even if I die, I will tell the truth. You know, this is the Pashto customs. 
It is the tradition. And this is the law. If you witness something like a crime, you have to testify about it. Even if somebody wants me to go to Australia or to the US or to any other country in the world, I would go there and I would testify that Ali Jan was a laborer. He was a laborer. He was a laborer. In their closing arguments, both sides of this case appeal to the judge to accept their version of events as the most credible. Robert Smith's lawyers are asking the judge, Justice Anthony Bosanko, to accept there were no fighting age males found in that final compound, and that Robert Smith and Person 11 engaged a spotter in the cornfield and killed him legally in accordance with the laws of war. Lawyers for the newspapers argue that Robert Smith was involved in the unlawful killing of a man named Ali Jan, and that to accept Robert Smith's account of the engagement relies on the acceptance of a compounding series of increasing improbabilities. There are a few pieces of evidence it's important to focus on. First, the kick from the cliff. Obviously, this kick is a crucial part of this evidence. The court hears testimony that there were many soldiers in Darwin at the time, and lawyers for Robert Smith argue, well, how did nobody else see this kick? The newspapers argue in response that those soldiers would need to have been looking at the exact spot at the exact moment in time to witness it. And at the time the cliff kick happened, the soldiers were moving to their extraction point. Their attention was elsewhere. And they say that if other soldiers did witness the kick, a culture of silence within the regiment stopped them from ever speaking about it. Robert Smith's lawyers say the cliff kick is not credible because there's no evidence Robert Smith has behaved this way on any other mission. And they also say if Robert Smith covered up the killing of Ali Jan, why did he then brag about it to other soldiers? And they say only one person remembers this conversation, and that's person four. Which brings us to the alleged cover-up, the throwdown, the ICOM radio that was placed on the man's body. The newspapers say military documents from the raid on Darwan demonstrate there were two ICOMs found during the mission, but only one ever made it back to base. These are documents that were shown in closed court, so we don't know much more than that. Robert Smith's lawyers say the court has heard testimony from two soldiers, Person 11 and Robert Smith himself, saying the spotter shot in the cornfield was carrying the ICOM. There's also the question of what the judge should make of the photographs of the man alleged to be Ali Jan. Robert Smith's lawyers say the explanation for the wounds on his body alleged by the newspapers are speculative and there's no forensic evidence to back up that speculation. The newspapers argue the judge's role here is not to make a forensic determination, but rather to assess whether those wounds are most likely to align with the accounts of the newspaper's witnesses or with those of Robert Smith and his witnesses. An Afghan man's body lay in a cornfield, killed by Australian soldiers. But how that man's body came to be there, and how he died, will be a critical question in this trial, and will carry immense weight. Next, on Ben Robert Smith, versus the media. Robert Smith's private life hits the headlines 
as he faces down allegations of domestic violence and intimidation as part of the newspaper's defence. He said to me, as long as we're on the same page, you've got nothing to worry about. But if you do anything stupid or turn on me, I'll burn your house down. From the woman with whom he had an affair. You're amazing. You make me feel like I never have before. You're never out of my mind. And I keep thinking about meeting your family and you meeting my girls, what we could do together and where we could go in life. Allegations that threaten to undermine the public image of the married soldier and former father of the year. He was standing in our bedroom and I didn't want to lie. It was enough lies. Then he pointed to our children that were in the lounge room and he said, if you don't lie, you will lose them. Ben Robert Smith denies wrongdoing and attempts to set the record straight in court. I've never hit a woman. I never would hit a woman. I certainly have never hit person 17. The events surrounding the raid on Darwan are some of the most fiercely contested and consequential of this entire trial. To help keep track of the list of witnesses and evidence, we've put together a map which you can use to get a better picture of what happened in that village on that day. Go to Guardian Australia's Instagram page to see a version of the map. Ben Robert Smith versus the media featured Jason Chong as the voice of Ben Robert Smith. Nicholas Owens SC was voiced by Colin Smith. Bruce McClintock SC by Dane Carson. Arthur Moses SC by Barry Lee Pierce. Featuring Shazada by Faradullah Mohibi, Muhammad Hanifa by Ferdos Adelpour, Mangul by Ali Morad. Person 4, Brian Rooney. Person 11, Liam Soden. Justice Pasanko, John Kirk. This episode was reported by me, Ben Doherty, and Ellen Leebeater, with production by Camilla Hannan and Joey Watson, series producer Ellen Leebeater, with production assistance from Alison Chan, Miles Herbert, Karishma Luthria, Mel Chun, Laura Briley Newton, and Daniel Simo. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannan with James Milsom, executive produced by Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Independent and investigative journalism, like Ben Robert Smith versus the media, takes time and money. The Guardian is free from commercial bias. We're not influenced by billionaire owners, by politicians or by shareholders. And unlike many news organisations, we've not put up a paywall as we believe everybody deserves access to quality journalism at a time when factual, honest reporting matters more than ever. To help us deliver this journalism, the kind of independent journalism the world needs, you can make a contribution to The Guardian. Every contribution, large or small, means we can keep investigating and exploring the critical issues of our time. And it only takes a minute. Just go to theguardian.com forward slash support full story.